chapter 17. Won't be a long series, probably four or five, maybe six weeks at the most. Though you know me, I could spend months on some of these things. It's a great chapter. I've always wanted to do a series on it. If you didn't bring a Bible, you should have. Bring one next time and share with someone this week. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather in a country, in a setting like this, filled with such beautiful, great music, and to be able to read and study your word and apply it to our lives. May it impact us as never before. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the next few weeks, we're going to eavesdrop on Jesus. We're going to listen to an intimate conversation of prayer that he has with his Father in heaven. Now admit it, when you were a kid, you loved to eavesdrop. Some of you still do. I've listened to some of my wife's prayers as I'd walk by the bedroom. She'd be singing or she'd be talking to God out loud. And I admit, I've stopped. And I've just kind of inclined my ear in that direction and listened to what she was saying. I know it was private, but since she spoke it out loud, I took the liberty to listen. And I was blessed by it. When you pray, what do you pray for? What are your priorities? Because people pray for what's important to them. Whatever is important to you, that's what you will pray for. And that's what makes John 17 so wonderful, is that you get to see what's important to Jesus. What's on his prayer list? What's on his menu? What things were important enough for him to talk to the Father about in prayer? Now, John 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus anywhere to be found in the New Testament. And this is the Lord's Prayer. I know we call the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven. That is not the Lord's Prayer. That's the disciples' prayer. Jesus taught them to pray that. This is the Lord's own prayer to his heavenly Father. Now, since the beginning of time, people have prayed. Since the beginning of life, people pray. There is some 650 recorded prayers on the pages of Scripture. Now, I remember praying as a kid, uh, being taught how to pray by my parents. And my first prayer was maybe your first prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. But it was just routine. It really didn't mean anything. I just said it. The quicker, the better, lights out, and I went to bed. It was meaningless. Sort of like the kid who prayed before he went to bed. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if he hollers, let him go. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. You know, it just sort of sounded all the same to him. Really wasn't meaningful. Now, I read an article recently out of Omni Magazine, of all places, about prayer. And the article began very promising. It said 57% of Americans pray every single day. Did you know that? 57% pray every day. 70% of Americans pray at least once a week. And only a meager 1% never pray at all. Now that sounds pretty exciting, but before you get too excited, you should know that many unbelievers pray. In fact, listen to the rest of the article. Quote, the ritual of prayer can even be found in the substantial amounts among agnostics and atheists. Can you imagine that? Atheists praying. Fourteen percent of those with no religion pray every day, as do another sixty percent of those 
with an alternative religious belief. About 38% of those who deny a belief in life after death pray daily, along with another 41% of those who have serious doubts about life beyond the grave. Now, the obvious question at this point would be, they don't believe in God. Who are they praying to? To whom it may concern, perhaps. Yet they pray. I even heard of a man who went hunting. He was not really a spiritual man. In fact, he was on... It was on Sunday that he went out hunting. His wife was in church. He refused to go. He was hunting with the guys. Walking up a steep hill with his gun, he came nose to nose with a bear, a grizzly. He was so astonished, he fell backwards, lost his gun, broke his leg, tumbled down the hill, and that bear started moving toward him. All of a sudden, he got very spiritual, and he started praying. Oh, God, please, at least make this bear to be a Christian bear. Just then, the bear fell to his knees and said... Father, I thank you for this food. May it nourish my body in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, he got his prayer answered. By the way, that's not a true story. Now, in John 17, I would say this is like the Mount Everest of all prayers. There's nothing like John chapter 17. Though there are many recorded prayers, nothing can touch this prayer. We're on holy ground in this chapter. The veil is drawn aside and you get to peek into the very heart of God, this intimate conversation between the Son and the Father. It's been a chapter that has inspired and comforted people for centuries. Martin Luther said it was among the greatest chapters in the Bible. John Knox, the Scottish reformer during the Reformation time, asked his wife to read this chapter while he was on his deathbed. In fact, as he passed into eternity, he heard these words as spoken by his wife. You should know, however, that some will say that this prayer is just too holy to even comment on. You shouldn't study it. It defies commentary. You should just read it and move on. I couldn't disagree more simply because Jesus spoke it out loud so that people could hear it and make sure that it was recorded for all of history. In fact, look over at chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples over the brook Kidron. Obviously, there's lessons for us. Not to just read and move on, but to examine it. This morning, I want to briefly look at five notable things, qualities, in this prayer. Five distinctions in this prayer. First of all, the person who prayed it. You notice in verse 1 it says, Jesus spoke these words. And if you look at the color of the chapter, that's obvious. It's red, isn't it? It's red letter. Jesus is doing all of the praying, all of the talking. Now look at the first few verses with me. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, as you have given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You notice that Jesus places Himself at an equal level with His Father. That they may know you, this is eternal life, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
Now put anybody else's name in this prayer besides Jesus, and it doesn't make sense. In fact, it's blasphemous. Doesn't matter what church leader it is, what great person. If you insert or try to put their name in this chapter, it doesn't make any sense at all. Look over at verse 10 now. He continues to pray, And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now the first part of that verse, any Christian could say, Everything I have is yours. The second part, not everyone could say, only Christ. All that is yours, all that are yours are also mine. You see, Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God. You say, well, I'm a son of God. I've accepted Christ. You are God's child, and God is your Father by grace, not by nature. The Father is God, is Jesus' Father. This relationship is there by nature. Jesus is on the same level. Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, who being in very nature God... No one else could say that. Now, you should also know this isn't the first time Jesus prays. Nineteen separate times in the Gospels, we see Jesus praying to his Father. Different occasions. Remember the time before he picked his twelve disciples. He spent a night in prayer. Another time he rose up early before the day even began and he spent quality, concentrated time with his Father. Then there was that time when the crowd tried to take him by force and make him their king. In John chapter 6, he departed and went alone. In all of the critical times of his life, Jesus spoke to the Father. In Gethsemane, Jesus spoke at length to his Father. The very critical times of life. Now the first question is, as you see who this is speaking this prayer, Why did Jesus even need to pray at all? After all, if he's God, co-equal with the Father, why did Jesus even pray? It doesn't even make sense. Well, on one hand, you'd be right. Because on one hand, Jesus was God, fully God, having the characteristics of God. And being omniscient, being co-equal with the Father, he would have no need at all to pray. But see, that's half the story. Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. He was the God-man. He was not just a good man. He was not just a good God. He was the God-man. Fully God, fully man. As God not needing prayer, as man depending upon his Father in prayer. Again, Philippians 2. Who being in very nature God, he emptied, poured himself out, and became a man. And he depended on his Father while he walked this earth. And what an example that is to us. For Jesus himself said in John 14, The words that I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. There's a problem in the thinking of many believers as I see it. Many Christians picture Jesus only as God. Sort of as a phantom with a veiled covering of flesh, but they never picture him as man. Now, one of the marks of being a true Christian is that you believe Jesus is God. Definitely. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good teacher. He was God in the flesh. But sometimes I think Christians forget that he was also man, God and man together. Now, that's a mystery I don't quite understand. I don't think anybody does. 
But he was not just fully God, he was also fully man. That's important. Max Lucado wrote a book, and uh, there's one section of it that will stun some of you, and it was meant to, by the way, by the author. Quote, Jesus may have had pimples. I'm watching your reaction a little bit as I go through this. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him. It could be that his knees were bony. One thing's for sure. He was, while completely divine, also completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything that you and I ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He got colds. He burped. He had body odor. His feelings got hurt. He got tired. His head ached. To think of Jesus in such a light, well, it seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? It's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation, clean up the manure from around the manger, wipe the sweat out of his eyes, pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. He's easier to stomach that way. There's something about keeping him divine that keeps him distant, packaged, predictable. But don't do it. For heaven's sake, don't do it. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and the muck of our world. For only if we let him in can he pull us out. I like that. Did you know the first heresy of the church was not denying the divinity of Christ, but denying the humanity of Christ? It was called Gnosticism. That was the first thing the church ever had to fight against, is denying that Jesus Christ was God in flesh, fully human. Now, my point in all this is that if Jesus, the unique Son of God, while man, also God, was depending upon his Father, how much more do you and I need to do that? With all of our weaknesses, with all of our frailties, with all of our insecurities, if Jesus depended on his Father in prayer, could we be so arrogant as to think we don't need to? That's our example. So, The person who spoke it is the first thing to notice about this prayer. Secondly, the purpose that occasioned it. Jesus was about to leave the planet. He was about to ascend to his Father. And he was going to leave his disciples. In fact, turn over to chapter 13, which is the beginning, by the way, of this whole section. It's one package, one unit. Chapter 13, verse 1. It's the upper room setting. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, look at chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son might glorify you. In this section of Scripture, Jesus is like a coach rallying the team together, giving them last-minute instructions. He's about to leave them. He tells them about serving each other, loving each other. The Holy Spirit's going to come. I'm going to leave. You're going to be persecuted. He's strengthening them because He knows that His time is short upon the earth. Now, this really bewildered the disciples. After all, we're following you. What do you mean you're going to leave? 
That's why in John 14, the same section, he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Because they were troubled. They were bewildered. Imagine a coach saying, Let's go get him, team. By the way, this is my last game. I'm out of here. Wait a minute. We're depending on you. What if in 1996, the president we elect, whoever that will be, after all of his campaign promises, would stand up on his day of swearing in, turn to the cameras, turn to CNN and say, Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for voting for me. I've made many campaign promises the last several months. I just wanted you to know, however, that I have been diagnosed for some time with terminal cancer. I have a month to live. You'd say, What? Wait a minute. You made all of these promises. How could you ever fulfill what you said you would? We voted you into office thinking you're going to be with us a while. Jesus gets his team together. They're following him. He lets them know that he's going to be leaving soon. This occasion, the purpose of his prayer was to get them together, to strengthen them before this time. So look at verse 8, chapter 17. For I have given to them the words which you have given to me. What he told them in those previous chapters. They have received them. They have known surely that I came forth from you. They have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but I pray for those that you have given me, for they are yours. Look down at verse 11. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Now for four chapters he's been instructing them. Now he's praying for them. Here's my point. There's a mixture here, a balance here, of instruction and prayer. The word and prayer. That's the same balance you and I desperately need in our Christian walk. These are the basics of Christianity. Let's take a day at a time. In your daily devotional, the time that you spend with God, and I assume that you have that time every day, you need a balance of reading the Bible and then praying about and through what you have read. You need both of those. If it's just all Bible study and no prayer, you have light with no heat. If it's all prayer and no Bible study, you have all heat with no light. You have zeal, possibly, without knowledge. You need them both. In the book of Acts, Peter said, We will continually give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And so Jesus instructs them, and then out loud he prays for the application of that same truth. So, whenever you read this book, at night, in the morning, whenever you hear a message, your response should not just be, well, I'm going to underline that, or I'm going to buy that tape, but I'm going to pray through and talk to God about these lessons. Ask yourself questions like, is there a commandment here that I need to follow? Is there a warning I need to heed? Is there an example that I need to follow or shun? Ask yourself those questions. Pray as you read and read as you pray. J.I. Packer wrote, Meditation is a lost art today. Christian people suffer grievously from their ignorance of this practice. Meditation is the activity of calling to mind, thinking over, dwelling upon, and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works, the ways, the purposes, and the promises of God. You just don't read it. You feed 
on it. You turn it around. You apply it. You pray through it. Now, I think, I have a hunch that if there's one point we're weak on, it's the prayer part. I think that I'm speaking to a group of people who love the Bible. You love the Word. I love the Word. But what about the praying part? You know, it's a lot easier to get people to come to a Bible study than a prayer meeting. In fact, the very term prayer meeting, some of us, I don't know about that. That's tough. That's difficult. But remember, Jesus never taught his disciples how to preach a sermon. He did teach them how to pray. He taught them. He modeled it for them. And here at length, after instructing them, he then prays for them. Now, this prayer can be divided into three sections. Real briefly, for the next several weeks, here's the general outline. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. The key word is glory. He'll repeat it over and over again. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for the 12 disciples. The key word is keep or kept. He prays for their sanctity, their holiness. Then, from verses 20 to the end of the chapter, he prays for the rest. He prays for us. All of those who will believe. Look at verse 20, by the way. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Did you catch that? Jesus was praying for you. He had you in mind when he was offering up that prayer to his Father on that day or that evening. Can you imagine that? Jesus putting you on his prayer list? Does that excite you? Can you imagine anyone ever loving you that much? Some of you need to think about that for a moment. Some of you in your life, because of circumstances, have become very tunnel-visioned, very narrow-focused. You have had rejection after heartache, after failed relationship, after bummer, after drag, after whatever. One thing after another. You feel like, how could anyone possibly possibly love me this much? Well, God loves you that much. In fact, Jesus even said, the very hairs of your head are numbered. That's how detailed God is concerned about you. The hairs of your head are numbered. As we've said often, for some of you, that's an easy task. For others of you, it's more difficult. Some are easy. It's like one, five. But then God said to the prophet Isaiah concerning his people, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. What a precious picture that is. Remember doing that when you were in school, girls? You like that guy, you write his name on your hand. Guys never did this. Oh, they'd write the girl's name on the tennis shoe, like on the bottom, because they didn't want anybody else to see it. But God inscribes you on the palm of his hand. That's how much he loves you. And Jesus Christ loved you enough to pray for you during this time. And by the way, he's still praying for you even today. You say, how do you know this? Because it says so in the Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Did you know that the work of Jesus is not done? You say, oh, that's heresy. Now, listen up. The work of Jesus' atonement is done. On the cross, it's completed. But his work of intercession, of praying is not over. He's still right now at the right hand of God interceding for us. You say, well, why would Jesus need to pray for me now? (laughs) 
figure it out. You need it. So do I. And when I think about this, I get excited. You can't lose with Jesus putting you on his prayer list. The last two weeks, hearing people say, we are praying for you, we have always prayed for you, but we're specially holding you up before the throne of God. Listen, we felt it. We really experienced, after losing the baby and then my father, we really experienced what it means to be sustained by prayer through the body of Christ. But there's a thought that really, really excites me even above and beyond that. Jesus himself was bearing our names to his Father. That's awesome. He prayed for us. Thirdly, the thing about this prayer that marks it out is the power that results from it. The person who spoke it. But also the power that results from it. Uh, If you would just look down at verse 6. He said, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You have given them to me. They have kept your word. Several times in this chapter, Jesus prays for the disciples' relationship to God and their relationship to the Son himself. Down in verses 14 and 15, he prays for victory over the world for the disciples. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. That was on Jesus' heart. Down in verses 20 and 21, he prays for unity, our relationship to other Christians. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, these were the things that were on Jesus' heart to pray for concerning us. These were his priorities. Because Jesus prayed for these things, that means this is the basic will of God for the believer. This is the basic will of God for our lives. When we cooperate with the very things we read about here, when we pray for the same things and we line ourselves up with these principles, you're going to see results, power in your life. You see, there's a difference between praying for God's will and praying for my will using His name, which oftentimes we think is God's will because we say in Jesus' name, it, it must be, agree with me, God. Now, the secret of prayer is to find out what He wants And pray that. Go along with it. There's a difference between praying for God's will and praying for my will in His name. What's the difference? Results. That's the difference. When you pray for the will of God, you will see results. Again, 1 John chapter 5. This is the confidence we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Do you know what God's will is for your life? You say, no, I don't. I really wish I did. Actually, I think you do. You don't know every little detail of God's will for your life, but I think that this group is sophisticated enough in the Scriptures to know generally the will of God for their lives. And you can begin right here in John chapter 17, the things that were on the heart of Jesus that were so important that He would talk to His Father about. When you line yourself up with them, you'll see power and you'll see joy in your life. St. Francis Assisi, Assisi, excuse me, 
St. Francis Assisi, in the 1100s, forsook his life of pleasure-seeking, forsook his life of worldliness, committed himself to Christ, gave himself to prayer and to the ministry to the poor. People thought he was nuts for doing so. He said, one of his quotes, I want what God wants, that's why I'm so happy. You know, there's a secret there. Find out the will of God, go for it, and you'll see power, you'll see joy in your life. That's why Jesus said, when you pray, before you even get to the part, give us this day our daily bread, before you even get to personal petition, you begin by saying, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. You align yourself up with the will of God, by the way. That's the purpose of prayer. Not to get your will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on earth. And so Jesus Christ, in this prayer, gives to us the will of God. Better to find out what Jesus prayed and go for it. Fourthly, I want you to notice in verse 1 the posture that accompanied this prayer. Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Now, up to this point, for four chapters, he's been making eye contact with the disciples. He's been instructing them. Then suddenly there's a break. He lifts his eyes upward off the disciples toward heaven, as if disengaging from them, lifting his eyes up to glorify his Father, to the place that he would soon go to, home, heaven, and he prays. As Psalm 123 says, Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Now, we're not told if Jesus was sitting down when he lifted up his eyes, if he was walking from the upper room to the Kidron Valley on his way, if he was standing up, if he was kneeling down, All we are told is that he lifted up his eyes. That means his eyes were open and he looked up. Typically, when you ask a Protestant to pray, they will fold their hands, bow their heads, and shut their eyes. There's nothing wrong with that. Simply to tell you, you never find that anywhere in the Scripture. In fact, the Jews would often open up their eyes with their hands raised up, to denote, I am giving you glory and I am ready to receive anything you have from me. That was the purpose for that gesture. Now, what's the best position to pray in? What's the best posture? Some would say, well, kneeling down is. No, I like to stand. No, I like to be prostrate. really doesn't matter. The position of your heart is much more important. The Bible speaks about all of these positions. Here's a few of them. Abraham stood and looked toward Sodom when he prayed for it. His eyes were open. Jehoshaphat bowed to the ground before the battle with Moab. Jesus Christ knelt down in Gethsemane. Later on, he was flat on his face before the Father. Daniel, three times a day, knelt toward Jerusalem. David, however, sat down. It says he sat before the Lord and he prayed. It was a very comfortable position, and he prayed. I grew up in a church where we knelt sat, stood, knelt again, sat again, stood again, and just kept doing that. And we had kneelers that must have been invented by medieval torturers. I mean, it was the most uncomfortable position. I hated it. But you got to do it. Get on your knees and pray to God. 
I guess the best position for prayer depends on which position enables you to pray the best. Which enables you to focus undistracted. You know what I find for me the best position is? To walk. Late at night, I will often walk through the neighborhoods and I'll pray. Things come to my mind. It just comes more naturally for me. I pray when I drive. My wife prays for me when I drive as well. (laughs) But I always have my eyes open. I don't fold my hands, bow my head, and close my eyes. Obviously, I'm still alive. The position of the heart far outweighs the position of the body. In fact, it's easy to bow your body. It's a lot harder to bow your heart in submission to God. A person outwardly could raise his hands in front of the congregation, stand and sway, and at the same time be a carnal Christian. Position of the body doesn't denote anything necessarily. For God said, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. You might look over a congregation and say, they're not worshiping. Well, why would you say that? Well, they're not standing up, swinging. So what? Maybe their hearts are bowed in reverence before God right at this point. It's the position of the heart, not the body. In fact, Jesus said, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners that they may be seen by men. We should never pray to get attention. It cheapens prayer. We should pray so that it's undistracted. Finally, and we'll leave with this, let's look at the priority that directed this prayer. The priority that directed it. It's found in verse 1 to begin with. It's the word glorify. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Look down at verse 4. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. The word glory, glorify, is used in some form or another eight times in this prayer. That was the main concern and priority of Jesus in this prayer, was to glorify his Father. Now, basic question. What does glorify mean? What exactly does it mean to say, I want to bring glory to God? This is what the definition means. To make renowned or... To cause the dignity, the worth of some person to be manifest and acknowledged. In other words, you're always doing your best to show off the Father, to make Him the preeminent one. To have all things that you do and say and pray for, honoring, extolling, giving Him renown. That's what the word glorify means. Now, if you're going to make one mark in life, let it be this one. You want to leave a legacy? You want an epitaph on your tombstone? Let it be, he glorified God. Wouldn't that be a great one? This is what he left. His life was centered around glorifying God. And I think, personally, this is a point that many Christians overlook. Many Christians forget that God doesn't exist to make them happy. They exist to bring glory to him. God doesn't revolve around you. You are not the center of the universe. Our lives were meant to give glory and pleasure to God. You see, I think that the modern church has been poisoned by our own culture. It's a me generation. We have slogans like, love yourself, be true to yourself, be your own best friend. Everything is measured on the scale of personal pleasure, even God. Coming to church for many people has become the ultimate self-help exercise to meet my felt needs. And the gospel is approached that way. 
Listen to the way some Christians talk. Have you accepted Christ? Excuse me. I think it's the other way around. He accepts you. He enables you to receive Him. But it's almost like, well, here I am. What does God have for me? Oh, He's got a lot for you. You must forsake your sin and come to Him and receive Him as the Lord and Savior of your life. But God God will not revolve around you. Your life is meant to bring glory to God. Revelation chapter 4. The angels declare, For thy pleasure all things were created. Why do you exist? What's the purpose of your life? Is it just to be fulfilled, to be happy? The purpose of your life should be to glorify God. The very first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, What is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We begin by glorifying God. You might be among the 70% of Americans who pray every week, but if you pray to invite the Lord as to be sovereign, in charge, over your life, I'm not asking you, have you said a prayer and brought God on the shelf of your life? Well, you've got all these things plus God, but God is in control. Lord as well as Savior. It's time you do that. That's the first prayer that you need to make in your prayer life. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I admit it. I turn from it. I give you my life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to examine the greatest prayer ever prayed, one second to none. And our prayer, Father, is that we would be conformed to it, dependent upon you as Jesus was dependent upon you, that our priority might be to glorify you. I pray for those who have come to this service, but have come short of receiving you as the Lord of their lives. They have said prayers in the past. But Lord, I pray that they would come to a point of surrender and acknowledgement.